0: Hello lovely listeners. Now before we get into today's show, I just wanted to tell you that Cyclist isn't just a podcast. No, Cyclist is also a beautiful print magazine. It's packed full of all the best rides from around the world, the newest bikes and kit and loads of in-depth articles featuring guests just like on today's show. So head on over to cyclist.co.uk slash subscriptions And check out our latest Cyclist Magazine subscription offers. Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast and I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. Emma, you're joining me today. Hello Emma, did you have a wonderful Christmas?
1: Hello James, I did indeed, thank you. It was very festive, full of mince pies and Christmas pudding which apparently not everyone likes. How do you feel about Christmas pudding?
0: Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where um, having had this very same debate with my... She's basically my mother-in-law. We're not quite married yet. I mean, me and my partner, not with the mother-in-law. Um, I would take it or leave it. But at the same time, if it's given to me, I'll I'll have it and I'll be very happy with it. So it's not like I don't like it, but I wouldn't seek it out. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's not for me.
1: Okay, I've got if you. If that makes
0: any kind of sense. And it's and I find you know similar feelings towards the mince pie, similar feelings towards Ooh. the Christmas cake.
1: Yeah, I'm with you on Christmas cake, but I like Christmas pudding because my dad hides silver sixpence in them. I think that's some old age tradition. I don't know if anyone else does that.
0: Is, is your dad Charles Dickens?
1: He could be. I don't want to reveal anything. but um, <laughs> Yeah, so every little slice of Christmas pudding you get to, you know, oh, did I get a silver sixpence?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I j- <laughs> jest about that, but actually, that used to happen in my family. It still does. There is a sixpence from whenever you know one of the wars, probably the first one that's been in the family for a long time, gets trotted out per Christmas. And I don't know why it gets wrapped in foil. It's something to do with maybe it not like reacting.
1: I think yeah, it's protecting the silver.
0: Yeah, something they used to. It's probably like they used to make pipes out of lead, and then it killed everybody. They probably used to make money out of something that was awful to put in Christmas puddings.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to keep wrapping mine in full.
0: Yeah. Do you set yours on fire?
1: <laughs> yeah, as compulsory with holly on the top. Set it on fire. Pretty Does it upsetting. work?
0: Because you have that thing where it doesn't quite work and everyone's like, Ooh, oh, is it on fire? And you can't really see it because it's a blue flame and it's indoors.
1: That's true. I find the trick is plenty of brandy. Yes. You need a big spoon with plenty yeah. of brandy.
0: And microwave it first. If you really want to see it pop off.
1: Oh, microwave. Because then it starts
0: like vaporizing a little bit. But don't microwave it too much because it can obviously catch fire in the microwave that is
1: a risky game you're playing
0: and remember if you've got a sixpence and you're microwaving an old bit of pudding and no one's found that sixpence, <laughs> true you start seeing the arcing inside that so anyway we don't need to get into microwaves what we do need to get into is our podcast for you guys uh this week is with simon watcham who is everyone knows who simon watcham is emma who is simon watcham
1: the founder
0: of Rafa. The founder of Rafa, the kind of, and we, well, I won't even reveal what I, I, I sort of leveled at him, who I who I sort of draw parallels with. But in terms of cycling, it's a good case to say, I think, that not so much Simon Motsham, but Rafa in Britain was such a massive driving force in making cycling what it is now, which is basically, I mean, I don't know how you react to a phrase like this, making cycling cool. There's parts of me that feels like cycling sort of never can be cool, which is one of the brilliant things about it. But also making it, yeah, no, it, I mean, it did it did make it cool. It, it brought amazing imagery and it brought all lots of the old stories, which I wasn't aware of, to life through its clothes, which, you know, one person might say great marketing. Somebody else would just say it's a, one of those brands where, like, they just, they really love what they do. I genuinely believe that about Rafa, that they all absolutely love what they do.
1: I would agree. And I also think they bring people together with their communities, all the cycling club they have, the clubhouse they have in London. It's a real, yeah, brings together lots of cyclists, which is always a nice thing.
0: Yeah. Well, without further ado, let's welcome Simon Watson to the show. And he can tell us all about how Rafa has managed to get to where it is, bringing those people into cycling and where he's
2: going to go next. Terrible! It's is the only famous mottram out there.
0: Fascist so. British tennis player. That's an interesting place to start this recording.
2: <laughs> you should go. You should go and have a look. You should check him out online. He had like a moustache, and um, he was quite good actually. He was well, he was British number one for for a while before Tim Henman. Wow! But uh, his name was Buster. So I used to sometimes be called Buster, which used to annoy me. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you told and then me. And when what- I was a kid, actually, interestingly. I'm about, are you about to tell me the story I'm about to tell you? Which would be no,
0: cool. well, no, I don't know. Let's see. I'll write down the story and then you can tell it <laughs> and I'll hold up a piece of paper.
2: You know, when you get the, I don't know, I, I only have a certain number of stories and I never know who I've told the stories to, so you always think, oh, shit, have I told you this one before? Um, when I was a kid at school, my nickname was Sid because there was a bike shop in Leicester called Sid Mottram Cycles, so everyone called me Sid. And I didn't really ride much at the time. I was, you know, 14, 13 years old and... um There wasn't a relationship between me and the bike, but you know, as it turns out, unfortunately, that shop's now gone. So I can't go back and, you know, and pay homage, but it was prescience in some way. Yeah. So you can call me Sid, but not Buster. Did you meet Sid? I never met Sid, and you can still buy some Sid Mottram frames actually online. I keep thinking I should perhaps buy them, but I've not seen one I like yet
0: so uh, another you, well so therefore this that was not the story i thought you were going to tell it was i think in an interview that you and i did many moons ago you said that loads of your mates called you maps
2: <laughs> that's true that's still true even though we've now all got maps on our head units or whatever you call those things that stick out from your handlebars um <laughs> so they've all got maps now but um you know lots of people just can't read maps and i i obsess over maps and love maps and Always have done since the day of the paper map and would still rather have a paper map if I could. Um, And I always know where I am, you know, never get lost. I was going to say, yeah, so do you not
1: ride with a GPS device
2: as they're called nowadays? (laughs) Well, sadly, I do ride with a GPS enabled device (laughs) and not just my phone. (laughs) And I started doing it a long time ago, mainly to record distance. So, you know, back in the day, you used to have those little Averset computers that did speed and distance. And then they did speed, distance and heart rate, I think. And that's what we we used to use. And then I gave it all up because it just wasn't pure. And then I started to think, oh, I ought to record how far I go just because I had some kind of goal to get to 10,000 kilometers in a year or something. So I started doing it for that. And then I started using the mapping if I was going somewhere I'd never been to before. So I do sometimes use the GPS. um, It is pretty amazing, isn't it? But there's all sorts of settings they don't have. There's some deficiencies. So my two deficiencies with GPS is, one, it doesn't show the nicest quiet road route between A and B, I don't think, unless maybe no. Garmin does and I use Wahoo, but no. And there was another one. I can't remember what the other one was, but um, yeah, that was my main deficiency.
0: My main gripe, um, I don't live in London anymore, but used to, was there's no do not take me on the canal setting because depending <laughs> on the time of year... <laughs> And the time of day, it is, that is the worst place to ride a bike. It is not bucolic. You get in everybody's way and you get filthy, um, especially up past Camden Lock. But anyway, that's this, that's too geographic for people. that There will be listeners from all over the world um, to the podcast. So I don't <laughs> want to get too stuck into London. But I did want to kick off, Simon, asking you, with a view to Rafa turning 20, which is kind of incredible. I just think, like, you guys are 20 years old next year. How did you, and I know this will be a story that you've told countless times, but please do tell it again. How did you transition from being a trained accountant at Price Waterhouse in the 90s to being the guy who sold a £200 million British cycling apparel company?
2: $200 million, actually, just to be fair. Um, <laughs> oh, who's, count- who's counting? a <laughs> <has the> dollar <laughs> pound. Of- pretty close. It's pretty similar, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a long story. I mean, I, I, I I changed the first step from being an accountant, which was never my dream, but was a useful thing to do. My father was an accountant and I said, I'd never be an accountant. And then I ended up training as a chartered accountant. So read into that what you will, but it was a useful training. Um, but I, you know, when I was an accountant, I wasn't particularly good at it and I wasn't very interested in it, but it was a good training. And it meant that, um, you could sort of then go on to do other things. And I went from there into design and marketing, which is the obvious next step for all accountants, not. Um, So all my friends were going into the city and getting big jobs and going into industry or becoming partners at Price Waterhouse or whatever, whatever their dream was. And I used to read Design Week magazine and was obsessed with design and this emerging thing called brands and and marketing and architecture. So I wrote to the top 100 design companies in London and said, I'm an accountant, but I don't want to be your accountant. I'm quite numerate. Can you use my skills? And two of them said, come and have a chat. And, and one of them offered me a job. So I went from there to value brands at a place called Interbrand, which was super formative for me because it gave me this education about brands and branding at the early stage of that industry when most people didn't talk about brands didn't understand them. They were sort of quite skeptical about brands. It was like this intangible thing. People in accountancy hated it because it was intangible and, you know, something they couldn't get their hands around. So there was a bit of a holy war between the accountants and this company into brand. And I went from sort of gamekeeper to poacher, I suppose, and went to the other side and started valuing brands. And it gave me this useful perspective over how companies work, how brands work in the early days when they were sort of defining the best practice really. And that was, that was fantastic and showed me the world and, you know, gave me these skills. And I went from that to broader marketing and design businesses and a bit of e-services, e-consultancy, and then to RAFA. So actually when I step back and look at it, it all makes sense. But at the time, each step was kind of, well, that's what I should do next. And it's a bit of a unique path. Not many people have gone from Pricewaterhouse to Interbrand to agencies to to sort of luxury consulting and design to Rafa. In fact, nobody's done it to Rafa, but nobody's taken that path. But it's it's worked for me. So it's given me quite a lot of left brain stuff from the, the financial and strategic things. And then right brain stuff around creativity and um, design. So Rafa is both those things, I suppose. That's the shorthand version of how I got to here. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good
0: one, but I think you. But one bit you just glossed over, which is the most important bit, is that. And then I transitioned into Rafa because Rafa, of course, didn't exist. You started Rafa, and I know we just you, know, you just discussed that even as a kid. You know, you're really into cycling, but did you come at Rafa thinking I spy a niche in an industry, and I know how to brand and market? as well as make a good quality product into that niche to be able to make a successful company? Or did you start Rafa because you just went, I just really want to have my own cycling brand? It's a bit of both, to
2: be honest. Um, I didn't start out thinking that I would be able to have my own cycling brand. And I didn't really think that there was a niche in the market. And I've always felt that Rafa, to a degree, came around the side of the market. It wasn't like there's a market and, oh, there's a bit there that's really interesting and I should go there. We sort of helped create a, a new part of the market. I suppose it didn't really exist, so so it wasn't as as simple as just identifying a gap and going into it. Um, we had to sort of create the gap, if you like. But I did want to have my own brand. I, I, you know, all my training had told me that I really wanted to. I knew what I thought best practice was, and I could see that most companies weren't doing it. And I re- and my my father had worked for an entrepreneur, so I'd sort of probably in my genes, I'd had this this sort of indoctrination in the 80s when I was growing up, that that's sort of what you're supposed to do. And I was never particularly happy in large organizations and institutions. I sort of was a bit more entrepreneurial. So I wanted to start something. And I wrote lots of business plans for different things that had nothing to do with cycling. You know, agency ideas, product ideas, all terrible. You know, I suspect lots of people have written half-formed business plans and and then put them away because they're rubbish. Um, and you have to try, don't you? And I kept coming back to this thought that I had that cycling was just being completely underrepresented. Most of the world didn't know about it. The people who were in the industry didn't seem to care about it. The best people in the world, you know, the best marketeers, the best product designers, the best e-commerce practitioners, the best whatever CEOs didn't choose to work in cycling. <laughs> and I suspect they still don't really choose to. I and mean, there are better people now coming into the industry, so that's great, but we're still miles away, and most of the world still doesn't look at cycling as something cool. So, we, you know, we've gone a long way, but we've still got miles to go. But I just couldn't understand why no, – well, I could understand why nobody had done it, but I couldn't, I couldn't bear that nobody had done it. And the more I delved into the history of cycling and the more I understood about the, the sport – from a fan perspective not as a practitioner and the more i rode my bike and loved it the more i thought well this you know this is an amazing platform for a brand if you can't bottle this up and sell it to people and go look you know come and get involved in this thing and it'll you know transform your life if you can't do that with cycling then i couldn't think of anything more inspirational in my life so i sort of felt i had to do it at that point so i started talking to everybody and getting boring with everybody which i still am i still only talk about cycling really well cycling and gardening now is my two by two obsessions and everybody i'd speak to i'd just be saying well you know there's this this sport have you heard about it you know do you know what mon von two is you know do you realize that you know hugo coblade you know was this amazing guy who crashed his white alfa romeo into a tree and committed suicide and he was just like this super stylish guy and look at this picture and like, oh wow yeah and so i found myself just yeah talking about it all the time and and at the end of every evening, just writing down thoughts. And then one summer on holiday, I spent every evening writing the business plan.
1: And when you first pitched the idea of Rafa, was it all positive? Or did you kind of have to, like, did you have to speak to a whole load of people to persuade them it was a good idea? I
2: kissed many frogs, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't all positive. And, and I thought initially, I thought, oh, I'd, I'd track down that there were these people in the city, these sort of financial guys who were... And they were all men who were active cyclists like I was and did the ATAP like I did. And I've met them on the ATAP tour and stuff. And I thought, oh, they must be perfect because they're they're super wealthy, really helpful, and they get cycling unlike most people in the world. So I'll go to them first. and And basically, every one of them said no, probably because it was, I don't know, lots of people can't see something until it's there in front of them. But I think a lot of it was because it was their passion and lots of people don't like to confuse their passion with their profession, if you like. So for them, investing money was kind of a rational thing that you, you, know, you lose your shirt if you get too emotional about, whereas this was something they were emotional about. And anyway, them plus a couple of hundred other people said no. But through the course of doing that for 18 months, I managed to refine the offer, get more certain in my mind about what it was and what it wasn't. And found a handful of friends and family and a couple of people I've met who would put money in to get it going. So, so it wasn't, it really wasn't a done deal. And I mean, you can't imagine how, how unlikely it was at the time, you know, selling clothes online to men in the year 2002 didn't happen. I didn't buy clothes online as a individual. Maybe I'd bought one thing. You know, we'd only just had broadband, so download speeds were terrible. So you remember, I'm not sure if you can even remember life before broadband, but it was shit. Basically, you know, you, to buy something, you had to sit there and refresh and wait for these things to pages to load and stuff. But you could see, and I'd done lots of a bit of work in e-services, so I, I kind of knew that that was coming, and it felt like that was the way that commerce was going to go. That's the way brands were going to go. And if you wanted to create a brand and a business for a sort of niche audience, you could do that and target them all over the world using the internet. Whereas before that, it was catalogue retailing, and you'd have to post catalogues to Melbourne and Tokyo and San Francisco, which no one's going to do. So, you know, things like that sort of made it, to me, made it seem obvious that this was something that should be explored. And it was a combination of lots of things that I'd done Lots of observations I had that I built through 15 plus years in, you know, consulting. So one was e-commerce. One was luxury. You know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, luxury brands had become these. They were becoming these huge things. And this whole idea that you could build these incredibly desirable properties, sometimes over hundreds of years, sometimes over tens of years that would mean something much more profound to consumers and, and command much higher prices. We all started to sort of see that as being acceptable and kind of interesting. And cycling didn't have any luxury brands at all. You know, it was, it was so far from that, it was untrue. Plus the idea that you could um, build the whole thing around experiences. And, you, well, you should go di- direct-to-consumer for a start. I mean, nobody was direct-to-consumer at the time. No cycling brand, I think, at the time was direct-to-consumer. Wiggle came along just after us, I think. Um, But you know, there were, everyone sold through shops. And if you wanted some cycling stuff, you did mail order or you went to a shop. You know, there was no internet direct businesses. And um, it just felt to me like it was the perfect thing to do. And then building it around experiences. So there was a, a book written in 2000 called The Experience Economy. And it was all about how you don't just buy products these days, you value experiences. You know, whether that's you know, going to Nike Town rather than just going to Sports Direct. You know, there's a a different kind of experience that you're prepared to pay for. And the brands that really get into people's heads are the ones that offer an experience, not just a product. And I felt that very keenly. So, you know, luxury, direct-to-consumer experiences, passion for cycling that people hadn't really understood what it was about, put all that together. And the Rafa business plan sort of spat out the back, just like that. Just like just, just too easy. I think one of the <laughs> the things that...
0: Well, two things that really strike me about Rafa. Number one is in a sport steeped in history, there are loads of bicycle brands and there's lots of famous names attached to those bicycle brands and we can either see them written on the down tube like Fausto Pinarello or we can kind of imagine them riding those bikes like Eddie Merckx. That does seem to me to be exclusive to bicycles. I could not name a CEO or an MD of a clothing brand, except for you, which I think is extraordinary. And I wonder if that's, in some senses, key as well to Rafa. And I'm just going to really labor this point um, and try and paint a little kind of picture for listeners. You guys have got the Rafa Cycling Club, RCC, which is, you know, you can pay uh, a certain amount a year and you can get perks and you can also do Rafa holidays. Now, as a journalist, I went on one of these camps and there's lots of people from all over the world, but a huge contingent of people from Japan and Asia. When you came on stage to launch what was, I think, um, PowerWeave, the new shoe, it was literally like Steve Jobs arriving to announce the (laughs) iPhone. And I'm not joking. Like, okay, the scale is slightly different. It's a room of maybe 300 people. But it was incredible. You, to them, were something much more than a guy presenting this is the shoe that my company makes have you how when when did that (laughs) transpire and how do you sort of what's your kind of view on that now when you kind of like look at that from the the position you're in are you kind of it's a bit bamboozled by the whole thing or are you kind of a bit
2: like well yeah i always thought that would kind of be how it would work out just keep talking james it's great (laughs) i'm loving this (laughs) i mean part part i don't i don't think like that and and I don't know. I I don't want to be sort of overly humble or anything, but it was never, I'm not Rafa. Yeah, Rafa, I was building a brand that was something so much more than me. And it's not, well, Steve Jobs is one of many of our all time heroes. And Apple was one of the brands that I most loved in the 90s when I was consulting and have followed it all the way through. And the Crazy Ones commercial by Apple is the greatest. Piece of advertising of all time, in my view, and I subscribe to. I've you know I've drunk the Kool Aid. I completely love him and what they do. Rafa was slightly different, and it's um, going back to the beginning of your question. We didn't have any history because you know I'm just a, a nodder who loves riding, but I'm not very good. I happen to have taught myself a lot about the sport and I'd, you know had become obsessed with it, so I knew a lot about racing, but I was just a regular punter. So. I'm not the person that people are inspired by. Rafa is the thing that people are inspired by. And Rafa had, you know, came out of nothing. And even though there's a link to San Rafael and the team in the sixties, the Rafa team in the sixties, we didn't play on that. We never used it because we couldn't, because they had trademarks and, you know, we haven't got enough protection yet. And also that wasn't the point either. We wanted Rafa to represent all the best of what cycling is. Um, that was the goal. So, yeah, you know, Rafa equals cycling and Rafa does not equal me, you know, it's, it's much more aspirational than <laughs> I am, you know, so it's the people that I've been lucky enough to have in the business, uh, who I could you know, name lots of them, including lots of people we, we work with in shoots. It was always so great to go on the photo shoots because they were what I thought Rafa was and not for a minute did I think it was me. It's slightly when you have a community, when you have a real community like the RCC where people do come together physically IRL and spend time together <laughs> and, you know, really share things. And it's not just a buzzword in a deck, you know, then I think the people behind the brand and, and the sort of the founder of the brand becomes more interesting, I suppose. And I remember that moment in, it was in New wasn't it? Yeah. When we launched PowerWeave. Yeah. And I mean, it was pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's lovely that people are so interested in what we're doing and, if pa- if the Power Weave shoe had become as successful as the iPhone, <laughs> then, um, <laughs> then I'd have turned down this podcast and I'd be, you know, living in Silicon Valley or something. But, but it was very special and people from all around the world do feel part of something. And I mean, now that I'm mostly retired, the most significant thing I can do is probably to spend time with those members of the club and other customers and, and help connect them back to the, the the brand and the purpose behind the brand and the sport and just help lubricate that. And if I can do that, then that's, you know, that's, that's gives me great pleasure. But yeah, Steve Jobs, please compare me to Steve Jobs as long as you like. That's, (laughs) that's pretty amazing.
1: Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers, a training plan specific to your needs.
0: But the really smart thing is how Join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then Join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal.
1: It's really simple to use and workout sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair Join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts.
0: Join comes as an app. And right now, listeners of the Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join. Don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine Podcast isn't just a podcast. The clue is in the magazine bit. We were a magazine first and we still are. We're a monthly magazine. And right now, You can subscribe for three issues for £5. Just check out cyclist.co.uk. And there's also a really quite impressive little offer at the moment that we've got running, which is subscribe and get a sportful hot pack gilet, which is a very, very light gilet, which apparently, I know I've got the jacket version, and that had 60 kilometers of yarn in it because that's how thin the thread is. And this is a gilet version so it's probably, you know, it hasn't got the arms, but it's probably got about 40k in it. But they're really, really good. They're weatherproof, windproof, all that jazz. I can absolutely vouch for it. It's a £75 free gift for subscribing, ladies and gents. So check out cyclist.co.uk and subscribe to our lovely magazine now. You mentioned just there, um, now you've retired. That was another another question Emma and I had. Leading into this, because you know, obviously, we're diligently doing our research, and then coming up against this one very pressing missing fact: what is Simon Mottram's role in the Rafa business now? Because, as we touched upon in 2017, what are they are R-Z-C.
2: RZC RZC, as we should say,
0: yeah RZC, yeah, the guy the uh, the heirs to the Walmart fortune, who must be sitting on a serious chunk of chunk of change there. They they bought Rafa and. With that, at the time, there was kind of this idea that you would step down as CEO, which again, I mean, to, to make that parallel, it was news in the bike industry in the way that it would be news, um, you know, if a sort of like James Dyson steps away from Dyson or something like that. It was it was a thing that doesn't normally happen when a brand is taken over, I don't think. Where did that leave you after 2017? Sort of where, where are you sitting within Rafa at the moment?
2: Yeah, well, to correct you slightly, I mean, when we sold the business in 2017, um I retained, you know, a a nice shareholding. And there was there was never the immediate feeling that I would step down. Yeah, you know, that wasn't the deal. The deal was I'd partner with them to keep building the business. And lots of people say that when they sell a business and they're probably subject to an earnout where they, they've got to do two or three years and then they can cash in their shares and go and do something else. That wasn't the conversation we had and that wasn't the deal. The deal was I would stay on the CEO and steer the ship and drive it forward with them as shareholders for as long as it made sense. And to be honest, it made sense for three or four years after that. You know, we, were, we had lots to do. We were, we were still, you know, growing like crazy. We had, you know, we also had some hiccups. We had to navigate as the business gets bigger. There's, all, there's so many things to tackle that what you don't want to do is suddenly lose every, you know, all your center of gravity. So, and I had no reason to step down. I was, you know, loving it absolutely loving it. But after four years of doing that, you know, through to 2020, end of 21, at the end of that period, I sort of thought, well, I, you know, I I think the business is now heading to be something much more significant. And for it to get there, it needs a different kind of leader. And the skills that I have are probably not the best skills for that kind of role. You know, you need somebody who's used to managing a much bigger organization, who's perhaps a bit more diplomatic who uh, is a bit less passionate and a bit more sensible because as you know, every bet is a much bigger bet. You know, when I was starting out, we could, I could bet the farm because a farm was a really, really small thing. <laughs> um, whereas now if, you know, if you're going to get, if you get it wrong, it, it's, it costs a lot of money. So there are there are skilled CEOs out there that, that, you know, we felt, I felt would, would probably be better. So I said to the board, listen, I think in a year I'm, i'm going to want to step down and we started a search and my job now is to still be on the board i'm still a shareholder um i'm still founder i'm still something of an employee but i do you know not very much time i do half a day a week or a day a week and and i'm you know doing the things that i can most add value in which is board meetings helping the ceo and as i said before being with customers you know, the most important thing I can do probably is to be with customers and try not to interfere beyond that. That's my job. So it, it wasn't something that was part of the deal. It was something that I came to the conclusion it was the right thing to do. And also I was pretty exhausted if you do something flat stick for 20 years. And I'd done 15 years before that. And, you know, my, my style is not to do a nine to five. I was utterly obsessed and did 24 hours a day working and I didn't want that to, you know, I didn't want to burn out and have no energy for the rest of my life. So, so I wanted to find a new path um, and still be involved, which is what we managed to do.
1: And how did the pandemic influence you sort of stepping away
2: from the helm? Did that speed anything up? Did it slow it down? Uh, that's a really interesting question because, I mean, the, the pandemic affected lots of things, you know, like everybody in cycling we had. A really big boom <laughs> and we had an even bigger boom than lots of people because we had stock which at the beginning of the pandemic that was the big crisis was nobody had any stock we had loads of stock so we we did really really well and then we had a bit of a hangover afterwards like everybody else so in a way the pandemic was hugely important for for us and for me personally but in terms of the transition it wasn't at all you know I decided that I would want to hand over in in 21 so sort of We'd been going through the pandemic. We'd been through the worst part. I remember interviewing the guy that, we've actually had two CEOs since I left. So, you know, the first one was, a, was not very successful, but we went through that whole process on Zoom, which is really quite hard to do. And we spent all our lives on Zoom at that point for a year. So, you know, it felt like a sort of weird, natural thing to do, but looking back, it's like, oh my God, you know, that was so difficult. But no, I just felt it was, it was more about where the brand had got to, where the business had got to, and where I'd got to, and not wanting to get in the way. There's a book called The Founder's Mentality, which if anybody ever wants to read a business book, <laughs> which I've read a lot in my time, and anybody wants to understand how a founder thinks, it certainly resonated with me. It's basically my brain is in that book. <laughs> and it, and it analyses how one of the biggest problems for founder-led businesses is the founder who stays on too long. And we can probably all think of companies where the founder or the CEO is kind of still there and the business needs to change and needs to grow and they can't disassociate themselves from the company. And so I, I didn't want to be that person. You know, I wanted Rafa to succeed and, you know, I'm still a shareholder, so it matters enormously that it does. And emotionally, it matters hugely so. And I'm not Rafa, so <laughs> so it should be a bit easier. I'm not James Dyson. <laughs> well,
0: good, because James Dyson decided that uh, he would place to stay in Britain and then um, nicked off overseas. Um, so
2: There are a few of those, aren't there, who, yes, I, I don't identify with, I have to say.
0: Yeah. But we won't, we, won't get in, we won't get into that. That's da- dangerous territory for a podcast about cycling. But looking around the industry <laughs> at the moment, um, and you mentioned that word, Emma said pandemic, and then you said hangover, and these are two words that I'm hearing a lot together at the moment. And this won't be news to lots of listeners that um, you know Wiggle has, is in, finds, finds itself in very dire straits. And that's sort of like, I don't know, the combination of John Lewis and Sports Direct of cycling falling apart. You kind of think mm. this is an absolute pillar of the industry falling apart at a time when from a consumer point of view, you walk into a shop and you're told, actually, we can't get that 105 rear derailleur for another six, eight weeks, two months. Which sort of, as a consumer, makes you think like, oh, because there's so much demand. And it feels like I want that thing, everyone wants that thing. And if everyone wants that thing, then the businesses selling that thing must just be rubbing their hands together and it's, it's all going great. But apparently it's not. So what's kind of happening out there? I don't really understand economics. So if you could explain it like I'm five years old, that would also be appreciated. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'll try in my Denzel Washington style. Um I it is a it's a complicated business. You know, and, and particularly if you're in hardware. I think it's it's less complicated in in soft goods like clothing because the lead times are much shorter and the unit cost is much lower. But we have complicated supply chains and we have quite a long it takes a long time to get the product designed, developed and back into stock. And so working capital and the amount of money you have to invest in stock to be able to make the sales that you think you can make is right at the heart of the game that every business is playing. And if you get that slightly wrong, if you put too much working capital into stock and you run out of cash, then and you can't turn it quickly enough, then you're, you're high and dry and you won't survive. And that's behind lots of the problems at the moment. Equally, Which I suspect we'll see in 18 months or so when things start to pick up, which they absolutely will, we'll probably find lots of businesses struggling for stock. And they've become so worried about not having too much stock and turning the stuff they've got into cash that they end up with not enough cash and not enough stock. And it takes them, or they may even, even if they've got cash, it's going to take them nine to 12 months to get more stock. So we're going to see businesses struggling for stock as we come out of the downturn. So it's it's a horrible cycle which is why people are always looking at more interesting business models where you know for example bill to order so much easier you know you get the get the order in take the cash or half the cash make the product you know deliver the product that's so much simpler a business or a subscription where people pay you a certain amount like Soho house where people pay you loads of money at the beginning of the year and then you spend it through the year on serving them There are way easier ways to make money than most cycling businesses. And when demand has plateaued, which I think has happened, all the data suggests that the boom we had over 10, 12 years has plateaued out. And there are some bright sparks, you know, MTB is doing slightly better than bits. Gravel obviously is doing really well, but isn't that just road anyway? You know, the, the... it seems like we're not enjoying those boom times in the way that we did a few years ago. And so that makes it doubly difficult. And you've got tens, hundreds in my in my part of the market in the clothing business. We've got probably 20 brands, 25, 30 brands that didn't exist 10 years ago that all piled into the market because it all seemed really good and it's growing at five plus percent a year and everyone's buying lots of nice colored jerseys and then suddenly they're not buying as many. And we all got too much stock. And so that's what's happening. It's tough. It's tough out there. I think what's, what I find fascinating is that it kind of reminds me of 15 years ago or, or longer, maybe even 17, 18 years ago. Because back then, nobody cared about cycling. And you had to fight quite hard to get any sale because there wasn't this amazing, buoyant, mammal-fueled market that we've enjoyed for the last 10-plus years. And so it was up to us. If you wanted a customer, you had to basically go, look, This thing's either this product or this idea of cycling or this experience or whatever is phenomenal. We're going to show it to you in a brilliant way. We're going to inspire you to come and shop with us or to spend some time with us as a brand. That's what we have to do now. But I think lots of people have sort of got used to boom times where you don't have to do very much of that and all you all you have to do is just say yeah we've got cool stuff too and you could get a bit of the cool stuff that's being sold and some of the customers and you can have a sort of you know modest sized business you can't do that anymore but actually it's a massive opportunity and it's, it's back to fundamentals we can only keep growing and can only sort of really survive and thrive if we can excite customers we can inspire customers and that's the whole point of running a company and running a brand like Rafa. So, so it's interesting looking around and seeing people sort of shaking their heads and they're sort of slight, they've lost confidence. And, and I don't mean within Rafa, but in the market as a whole, it feels like suddenly no one can see a way out of this thing. And yet the way out of it is really obvious. It's just hard. It's harder to do, which is, as I say, you've got to be, you've got to have imagination, you've got to have creativity, and you've got to give customers things they don't realize they need. I mean, that's that's what we did in 2004 and and have done ever since. And we've got to do it too. Rafa's got to do it. So I'm, yeah, I think that's what's happened. Like, you know, Business cycle has made things difficult. It's super competitive. It'll shake out a bit, and it is shaking out with people like Wiggle. And it'll come again because the fundamentals around cycling are as strong as ever been, if not stronger. And I think they're more readily accepted. When I started out and I talked to people about, why cycling was a long-term bet, a good long-term bet. And when you talk about things like sustainability, in 2004, people weren't talking about sustainability. So, or some, some of us were, but not many people were. Now it's like, oh, tick, you know, urban mobility, congestion, tick, mental health, mental and physical health, tick, you know, with everything, everything that cycling is the best in the world at, we've got massive ticks next to it. So come on, guys, let's, you know, let's try a bit harder.
0: Yeah, I mean that's something that it's kind of I, I can't quite get my head around it because, as you say, you can just you can keep going with that list of all of the amazing things cycling does, and the fact that so I don't you know who knows what the statistics are, but most people you meet, it is unusual to meet someone that can't you know as an adult that can't ride a bike. So it's also kind of like just part of just the fabric of everyday life, irrespective of whether you even practice it, and yet cycling still remains something of a cottage industry but it seems to be an incredibly it could be an incre- It is an incredibly rich seam but there are a few brands that manage to actually mine that seam and be sustainable within it you know again just to hark back to i mentioned them earlier on pinarello they're another brand that almost sort of seem to buck any kind of industry trends still selling incredibly expensive bikes seemingly hand over fist and sponsoring the biggest team in cycling which cost them an absolute packet, and then there are other brands that come and go. You know, just like that. That you know, they're, they're around for what feels like a couple of weeks. So, is there something in cycling that's just kind of in will inherently always be a bit kind of cottage industry ish, or is there a way that it could professionalise itself? in a way that it currently isn't? Or am I just being a bit a bit mean to people? You know, I'm sitting in my ivory tower casting aspersions. <laughs> I don't run a company. I don't know what it's like out there. Am I actually just
2: being a bit wide of the mark? I think you're right that it's still a cottage industry. You know, I think that's true. And I was saying earlier about, you know, the best designers in the world, the best business managers, the best, you know, technologists in the world aren't working in cycling. And I think that's still true. And we are, you know, it's... It's not immature in that, you know, the bike's been around for a long time, but the industry and the market is still pretty low rent and quite immature. And I don't see why that has to be the case. I think the trouble is, and some people would probably lay an accusation at Rafa and Pinarello and people like us that, you know, we, we can do really well and we sell lots of stuff and we do some stuff, but we're not investing in the infrastructure and i I sort of think there's a fair point there I think for cycling to to really take a big step change and really move ahead is going to take a huge amount of investment and that that might be things like infrastructure, but it might be the sport well it also includes the sport you know have we really invested in? creating great races have we really invested in creating great teams really have we created heroes have we built enough infrastructure and bike lanes have we driven the prices low enough that that enough people can get involved in the sport at a young age and actually you still I mean I saw a stat last week that 25 percent of people in London now ride a bike sometimes which is pretty good or or somewhat regularly I can't remember what the definition was but it was a It was the highest it's ever been. And so, you know, it is ticking up very, very gradually. But for it to really take off, we probably all have to spend more time investing in it. And at the moment, there are no races in the UK that, well, there's the Lincoln and a couple of others. There's virtually no teams in the UK anymore. The same is true in other countries. You know, other countries are suffering too. The shot window of the sport is fundamentally broken, which we could talk for hours about and I'm very passionate about. And... There's a first chink of light that it might get solved, but there's a long way to go. And cycling's still expensive for too many people. And it's, you know it seems unsafe out there, even though the stats would suggest that it's getting safer to ride a bike, not less safe. But you see the way some people drive and you think, oh, God. <laughs> so there's lots of things we've got to tackle. And, and that's why you know, it can have all those ticks and it can be the biggest long-term bet, but it won't just happen. And it it definitely won't happen if we all pile in and all have little companies competing with each other to sell a jersey or to create another bike that looks like all the other bikes. It only comes through innovation and investment and commitment and, and leadership and design and, you know, creativity.
1: So how can we actually make that happen? Is that sort of a shared ownership thing where all these cycling brands need to come together and be like, hey, let's ignore competition for a bit and let's work together and let's push policy through governments. Let's make cycling lanes better. Is that what needs to happen? Because it seems like you talk to a lot of people and everyone's saying, yeah, we really want this to happen. But who's making the inroads to making it happen?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's difficult, isn't it? I, I think it's a bit of There's two sides to it. One side is that, yes, if companies can come together around things like infrastructure and we can all work with, you know, the the Bicycle Association and Adam Tranter and whoever's doing all this work, you know, that's just a UK reference, but it's true all over the world. If we could all get behind those people, it would definitely help. True. Definitely true. But as somebody who kind of can't bear talking shops and, you know, I'm... It's not It's not my world to sit down with everybody and sort of try and hammer out a deal. I think it falls to the individual and the individual company. And the companies need to be better. They need to work harder to make more money that they can then invest back into the sport. And when they are thinking about what they're going to spend their marketing money on, they shouldn't be putting it all on performance digital. They should be doing something that truly inspires people. You know, there are choices that every company makes with how they spend their money. And they can either think high and think big. And, you know, I, I managed to get away with doing that for 20 years at Rafa, so maybe I'm I'm lucky. But I do believe if you you know, it's up to it's up to all of us to do it. We can do it as individuals, we can do it as companies, we can do it as brand owners. Um, and we can work together if that happens too. And I think with the with the sport, that's definitely true. We definitely have to work together in the sport, but yeah, I think individual action is where it starts.
1: I guess we're kind of talking here a bit about making the world a safer, better place. And I noticed that Rafa has joined the, the Ethical Trading Initiative as a founding member. But what does that actually mean? Can you take us through a bit of that?
2: I'm not close to the Ethical Trading Initiative, but I know lots of the other things that we've we've been involved in. And I just I think it's all about ambition, basically. and And Everyone, I I can only assume that everyone wants their business to be the best business in the world. They want their brand to be the best brand in the world, don't they? Otherwise, why are they doing it? I suppose some people want to make pots of cash, but that's always seemed secondary to me. And so some of these things are now things that you just really have to do. You know, you have to do if you're going to be a viable business and they're the right thing to do. And so, you know, the whole sustainability approach for Rafa has always been significant and it's certainly in the last 10 years, it's become more and more important to us because it's how businesses should operate. And when you're starting out you know, and you're scrappy and you're trying to not lose your shirt, then maybe you can play a little bit faster and looser with these things because you might not be around next week. But when once you've started to actually have some momentum and have some scale, you have to run a company properly and you have to treat people well and you have to be as circular as you possibly can with the resources that you use. And I'm super proud that Rafa has, you know, done free repairs from day one when nobody was doing repairs. You know, we did free repairs, not because we could make some money out of it. We've done 40 or 50,000 repairs in the last 20 years, and we don't charge a penny for that. And it's cost us a lot of money, but it was all about the right thing to do and adding value to the customer and honoring the product and going, this stuff isn't shit. You know, this isn't disposable polyester nonsense. This is actually something that's valuable. So things like repairs are so important. Things like ethical trading standards, really important. Um, You know, working with other companies to try and get the whole industry to be more sustainable are quite important. That's one thing where we can work together. But I see it as part and parcel of being a good company these days and and it should be non-negotiable.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And do you ever, like personally, do you ever worry about, you know, Rafa clothing being thrown away, or walking past a like a recycling clothing centre even, and seeing Rafa jersey on the floor, or even worst case scenario, something from Rafa ending up in the in the great big garbage patch um in the Pacific Ocean. Like, is this clothing waste that we see? You know, we've seen so many documentaries happening um that sorry that are covering it. You know, is clothing mm. waste a big? Is, is that does
2: that keep you up at night? It doesn't keep me up at night anymore because I'm, I'm not in charge <laughs> of the whole business. Um, it doesn't keep me up at night, I have to say, I and mean, nothing keeps me up at night. But it's, um, yes, it would be a concern if I ever saw those things. And, you know, seeing the very active secondary market for RAFA product, I actually think that's a really good thing. Having a secondary market means that this stuff is being reused. And I haven't seen a pile of stuff going to landfill or going to ocean fill or whatever. Um, I haven't seen that happen. I suspect it must happen. And that is a great shame and that's horrible but you know in 2025 90% of all our products or even now actually 90% of our products are now recyclable so you know we're in a much better position that shouldn't be a problem that's going to afflict us 10 years ago it was much more tricky and as you get bigger of course and you have that working capital cycle and stock cycle we're talking about economically the downside of that or the one of the fallouts it's not just profit and it's not just people's jobs or whatever, it's also piles of stock that's unsold and you know, wiggle going out of business if they really do. And there's gonna be a mountain of stuff which might find its way to not to people who can't afford it, but to just piles somewhere in the world, and that's terrible. So so I think we're getting around that. And I I don't lose sleep it The thing I always was most concerned about every day, every minute of every day is the customer and what the customer is experiencing, which sounds like such corporate bollocks, but it really isn't. And, you know, if you're a marketeer and if, you, if you're a founder of a brand that's all about the customer experience, it's, it is by far the most important thing. And, the more, and, and so things like sustainability are really important, and they're important to customers too, so yeah, of course. But the customer loving what we do, valuing the products having a good experience, wanting to come back and do more with us, come on a, an, an escape with us or, you know, come to an evening event or do the festive 500 or buy another pair of bib shorts. That's what matters to me. And if that's not working very well, that to me, that's way more important than everything else because if we don't do that right, nothing else exists. So, and I do worry that some people get distracted from that. And customer focus, again, it sounds like corporate jargon. It's the most important thing. It's like you being you know, obsessed with your readers or listeners or whatever. You have to be. You know, we're the ones that matter. It sounds so obvious, doesn't it? Maybe I'm being obvious.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. You're not being obvious. And it's a, it's a wonderful way uh, for Emma and I just to also just throw out there. Listeners, we do love you. Thank you very yeah, much yeah. for tuning in. But what... <laughs> <laughs> what I find, yeah, I mean, you. So you say, and I, I fully believe you. You say that you know you're not you're not a man readily kept up at night by by worries like that. Partly, I feel because you're clearly someone who sees problems and kind of solves problems, as opposed to sees problems and they kind of get on top of you. Rafa is effectively, you know, Rafa demonstrates that because it's a brand that's been around for so long. However. I feel like you're also very immersed in cycling, you're very immersed in Rafa, and you must have felt along the way that Rafa's popularity, or it's, I guess it's cool cachet, has waxed and waned and up and down. And how have you kind of dealt with that? And just to kind of illustrate the bits that I'm kind of thinking about, that initial point in 2012, but there was, you know, you're first in the water in this brave new dawn of cycling of amazing black and white images of people just sweating and grimacing and having kind of a horrible time on a bike but it turns out that's what we wanted to do provided we were wearing really cheap clothing (laughs) and actually the very people oh you cynic no 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 because i am that person i am that person and i still do that i honestly and i'm not i'm i'm I'm, I'm saying this sincerely it gives me no greater pleasure in life than to put on a technical jacket and go out in the rain i absolutely love that it is all it's just brilliant but those people who I think, because we are, as Cyclists the Magazine, we've been on a similar journey, I think, in some senses, because there was a lot of buoyancy in the market, which came from well heeled, middle aged white men, basically, you know, the mammals as they ended up branded in the press. And as those people progressed through the sport, more people came along, and suddenly it wasn't cool to be that person. And that person may well have been wearing Rafa because that's what Rafa, that's who Rafa was selling to. But then there was this incredible change of direction I felt when you guys sponsored Team Sky. And I wonder, was that a reaction to where you felt the brand was going? And then and, and then more recently, and I struggled to kind of put my finger on it, but I feel like, again, Rafa has become, once again, kind of like the custodians of cool in the way that, and I say this thinking of people like Legion and the way that Rafa is very popular in America, in a kind of indie way. It's not popular like it is in Britain as a kind of big, cool brand. It's quite a independent feeling Around Rafa in, in the states, say so. What I'm kind of driving at, in a very long-winded way, is <laughs> where have those watershed moments come, and how have you personally dealt with feeling like sometimes the public loves you, and other times the public has maybe moved on, and they were asking somebody else to dance.
2: That's so. That's so interesting to hear. And it, I mean, it's always really interesting to hear perspective from somebody outside the business who's looking at us from the outside in and going, well, you were like this, then you're like that, then you're like this. I mean, we started in 2004, so the black and white cool stuff was, you know, till about 2010 or 11, when nobody else was really doing anything. So, you know, times change, context changes. It will it will always wax and wane and it will always present challenges and you have to continually evolve if you're going to remain relevant. And if your ambition, if your purpose is super lofty and you really do want to change the world or make a dent in the universe and in my case make cycling the most popular sport in the world which it really isn't let's be honest um you 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 have to be prepared for that long road and you have to be prepared for those ups and downs and it's really hard the easiest thing in the world is to be super cool for a few people yes it's not the easiest thing in the world I'm sure there are easier things, but it's not really very hard, you know, because you're, and you can use exclusivity and elitism to say we're only about you, and we're not about all those other people, and that's that's fine up to a point, but it doesn't work if what you're trying to do is create a a movement effectively around cycling, and you want to suck more and more people in, and you want to be relevant to more and more people, which is what makes me very satisfied is when people come into the sport and people hopefully through Rafa, but often through other means and with other brands, take up cycling and go on this amazing 30 year journey of, of experiences that we've all, we've all enjoyed. It's easy and it was easy in the first few years because there was nobody there. So we could basically, I could say, cycling is this thing I could be super, super, focused because I knew the people I was going after were literally only a few, a few tens of thousands of people around the world who were in their mid thirties to forties and they were blokes and they already knew what cycling was and I could be everything to them. So the first two or three years was that. Then I could start saying, well, actually there's all these people who are people a bit like them, but who haven't discovered cycling. And if we make it cool enough, by doing these things, they're getting sucked in too. So the whole mammal thing was a natural evolution of being super, super niche and focused. But you get to a point where you do want to open up the aperture and reach more people. And the Team Sky decision in 2012, 2013, when we first started working with them, was a big shock. I mean, you remember it. It It was in some ways brilliant because little plucky Rafa takes on Adidas and gets the world's biggest team. Wow, you know. And it, it was it was an incredible journey for me personally because I was suddenly right in the middle of the world's greatest sport with the world's greatest team. But it rocked a lot of things and it ruffled a few feathers and suddenly we wanted to be in Evans Cycles reaching people who just started cycling and commuters and people who, who weren't going to buy a Colnago for three grand. They were actually going to buy a bike for 800 quid and wanted to do a breeze ride or a you know, a sky ride to get their first fix. And we needed to be relevant to them as well as... And it, and it was hard. It was really hard because the people that, you know, the cool people at the heart of the brand want to keep it cool just for them because that's instinctive. It's what, you know, it's what we all sort of feel like we want to do. But that's not the mission. That's not the purpose. So there's this sort of oscillation around the purpose that happens. And you sort of, you have to keep... What, what you can't do is sort of democratize yourself immediately, massively, and just appeal to, try and appeal to everybody. Because if you do that, then you don't create the momentum, you don't create the desirability, you don't create the inspiration that's going to drive the business forward. But you have to keep opening that aperture and reaching more people. And that's Rafa's journey. So you'll see in the next 10 years, I'm sure... However good the leadership is, however much I can contribute from the board, we'll get some things really right and we'll be cool in some places. And then we'll be a bit too big in other places. We might get a bit flabby in other markets. And then we'll, we'll keep hopefully taking steps up and then plateauing a bit and then taking steps up. That's just the journey we're on. And if you look at, and I would always in these situations, and I know cyclist is was created really for people like me. It's, you know, you're right in my world. I would always encourage us to step back and go, okay, let's forget about cycling a minute. Nike, you know, just look at Nike's journey. It's now whatever it is, a $30 billion business. <laughs> and they're still periodically quite, or at the same time, simultaneously super cool in some ways and just overexposed in other ways. And they're probably way bigger than any business needs to be. And it's all a bit ridiculous now, it's so big. But even at a billion dollars, you know, they were having to do those things. Yeah, Rafa's only 120 million pound business. Cycling is still only a, a small industry, a small market. So we're gonna go through that journey. And you can do it. You can absolutely do it. But you do it because that's that's why you exist. You exist to become bigger or for the sport to become bigger and for you to play a role in that. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's painful. It's painful, you know, whenever in the early days when there was a forum. When there was no social media, there were just chat rooms and some forums. And I used to go on the forums and read what people said about Rafa. And, you know, it was we were, you know, nobody was on the fence when it came to Rafa and it was fucking painful. And I, I used to ration myself to one evening a month. And I'd sit and I'd go through cycling sorry to talk about competitors, but cycling plus and bicycling. And there was there was one other forum that made sense. Maybe it was road.cc had started, I'm not sure. There were some forums where and it would start out with, "Oh, what a bunch of wankers they are!" You know, what's Rafa all about? <laughs> Why do they exist? How dare they wrap themselves in the history of the sport and just for their ill-gotten marketing gains? And they're probably, you know, they're probably driving around in their Maseratis and Ferraris while they're you know, laughing at us poor cyclists. And it be like, "Oh God, this is so painful." That's so not what we are. And then you'd get somebody saying, "Yeah, but I bought the stuff and it's quite good." And then somebody else would go. Yeah, and they did put on that race the other day. Oh, they sponsor a team. And, and, and before, you, before long, you get to this kind of like one camp saying one thing and one camp saying another, and you go, oh, it's okay. We've got balance. And so it's always been like that. And at the moment, you know, you could argue in the UK that we're, we're the big guys. You know, we're, the, we're the, one of the biggest clothing brands, if not the biggest one in the UK. And so, you know, we're going to be a bit slower. We're probably going to have pot shots thrown at us for being too big. Whereas in the u s as you say, perhaps we're a bit more agile and a bit cooler, and we've got we're associated with some maybe slightly cooler people, and it'll change and it will move around and it's just it's what comes with being a leader you know if you're a leader and you you're ambitious this stuff this is bread and butter, you have to do it
0: well, Simon, I think that is a brilliant place to leave this on, except for one last question you said <laughs> you've been talking a lot about leadership. I feel like some of the greatest leaders in the known history of civilization have been the Egyptians and, of course, Egyptians. Egyptian rulers famously buried in lovely sarcophaguses, sarcophagi, maybe, with loads of stuff that kind of was (laughs) emblematic of them. When you are buried, Simon, what do you want to be buried with? And I'd like a raffa item and a non-raffa item, please. (laughs) Oh, God.
2: Uh, I think you did warn me about that question. I really should have thought about it. (laughs) Um, Well, where is more interesting than what I'm with. I'm, I'm not particularly... Um, keen to be buried with possessions. I'd like to be buried just off Chalet Raynard in on Mont Ventoux. That would probably work for me. What I would have, I'd have a book. Tim Crabbe's the rider, because basically if somebody found my body and uncovered it and the book hadn't rotted away, if they read that book, they'd sort of get straight into my gut and my heart and what I think cycling is. It's all in that book. If anybody who's listening to this hasn't read it, I assume you both read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nodding. Emma, have you read it? Yes, I have read yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> we well, you know we sold more. We sold more copies of the Rider than Amazon in the first few years of Rafa, which I'm very wow. proud of. Partly because Amazon wasn't very big at the time, but also because <laughs> we just we just used to tell people you've got to read this book. Um, so yeah, I'd be buried with that, and I would. What else would I most? I'd probably have a pair of white Tricker shoes and and a purple pen and a Colnago. A Colnago, like it.
0: That would probably do it. It's a big, big coffin.
2: <laughs> <laughs> We've got to have a big coffin, haven't you?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then it can go in the British Museum one day. So, you know, go to town. They've got the space.
2: Actually, what I'd now have as well, the thing I'd have to have in there too now is a... a a really good pair of snips or secateurs for my gardening work.
0: Is this going to be where you're going to head next? Are you, have you just been slowly dropping this on us that the next time you'll pop up, Simon Watchman will have created an incredibly sexy pair of secateurs?
2: <laughs> so I'm, a really, I'm really not a very good cyclist. I'm a really, really bad gardener. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm at the first rung of the ladder and I've made, I'm making so many mistakes, but it's, it's just a beautiful thing. It's in a bit like cycling. It's great to be outside and doing stuff with your hands. And...
1: Are you more? Are you a vegetable grower? Are we talking about
2: just plants? Have you got a rose garden? Now my wife grows um, flowers. She grows amazing dahlias and sweet peas, and I grow food, Ooh, nice. which we eat, which is which is amazing. I've just written myself off any cool lists or. Any cyclist lists of people who are important? Because I'm now a gardener.
1: No, growing food is, I think, the coolest thing ever. I mean, being self sufficient is the dream, so I'm a big fan.
2: Brilliant, James.
0: Not so much. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I'm a a massive fan. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I I I moved. I now moved. I moved to Bristol from London, and there's some wonderful graffiti near me that just says in big bold letters, "Weather the storm, grow your own food." And it's, there's, a lot, there's a big drive in this city for self-sustainability. I can, there's allotments as far as I can see, and I want to get one, but I also know that I will be the guy on the allotment that all the other allotment people look, at, look down their noses at because, you know, my runner beans just won't, won't be all that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, anyway, Simon, thank you so much for joining us on the Cyclist Magazine podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, and yeah, wish you well uh, with your sprouts.
2: <laughs> thank you, Simon. Thank you very much.
0: Simon Mottram, ladies and gentlemen um Emma that's not the first time you've spoken to Simon so you have an impression of him already but what yeah how's how how do you sort of see him as a figure in cycling are you surprised in any way at kind of like his general demeanor because I kind of think he's way more approachable than I'd imagine like a kind of basically someone who created a 200 million dollar business
1: I agree and I actually quite like that about him I quite like the image of him gardening as well I think that's quite <laughs> <Yeah>. a vibe <laughs> it's not necessarily something you would expect with someone that's founded Rafa but there he is just green fingered
0: yeah Who knew? well I mean there's there's a great question for you have you ever grown anything and what did it taste like
1: that is a good question I have I grown anything oh not food
0: You've never grown, for, you must, what about school? Didn't you grow like, I don't know, cress or something as a sort of oh, experiment? Oh,
1: yeah. But that's a very long time ago. It all counts. Does it all count? Okay. Yeah. I've grown cress. <laughs> what about you, James?
0: <laughs> uh, I have, what have I grown? I have grown, that's a really, have I, I, grew, I grew a bean, I grew a bean plant, right? And it took ages, it took months. It looked really pretty and made lovely flowers. And I'm not joking you, it was about, six and a half feet seven feet tall it went right to the top of my balcony my old flat I got one bean off it and I have that bean I still have that bean I've dried that bean I don't know where it is somewhere in this house because it was such a momentous bean yeah <laughs>
1: I mean, I was gonna say was it the most delicious tasting bean ever, but you didn't even taste
0: it. When you've got one of something like that and it's taken you so long, it's been such a passion it. project. Yeah, exactly. I should frame I should get it like I don't like some people. Yeah, like set in a sort of like amber and then on one of those um like wax leather yes. uh, necklaces could, that surfers wear. And people want look to be really surfers. Cool. Yeah, I think so.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. I like it.
0: Wow. Brilliant. Before you go, Emma, I just want to ask you one other question, because now we are looking forwards to another year, 2024. Um, I'm sure mathematically there's something wonderful about 2024 sounds It's got a good ring to it. Do you have any resolutions or any, any wisdom that you might want to impart on people looking towards a new year, specifically because we're a cycling podcast? It might concern cycling. I don't know. That's up to you.
1: It may concern cycling. Well, I wouldn't want to impart any wisdom because, you know, I'm not quite sure it would be taken as wisdom. But one of my New Year's resolution is to explore more at home. So more of the UK. So cycle more of the UK is one of my big resolutions. Uh, yeah, I basically want to, I would love to do, what's it, John O'Groats, Land End, that one from North Scotland down. That's one I'd love to do, but also taking in each every, and every national park. I think there's 12 or 15 UK national parks, maybe. Something like that. I think it is 15. Or 12 and love to take in every one of those and to celebrate kind of the adventure that we have at home because I know for one I'm really guilty of being like oh no just get out of the UK there's more exciting cycling paths or trails or roads elsewhere um but actually we've got so much good stuff in the UK so I want to celebrate that more what about you?
0: year 2024 the year of the UK um that's that's very good that's that's I mean I'm going to stick that on my list as well that's a good way of looking at cycling definitely more exploring um having moved cities this year I've got two I've been here for like nine months and I've got two routes for cycling and two
1: in nine months
0: I know where's I'm just such a creature of habit and I just I like I sort of like the process of riding so much I almost sometimes don't mind where I'm doing it or particularly if it's I don 't know if it's the not having to think about anything that's what I love about riding. If it's somewhere new, it can be wonderful because you get to it's just incredibly stimulating and really be potentially very beautiful, whatever. But you also have to think about what you're doing. whereas if something becomes like an old pair of shoes that you sort of just slip on, and you forget about there's something in that that I'm drawn to, um, and also I just massively lack imagination. So maybe like my new year's resolution would be to sit down with some proper maps, maybe even an actual proper map and look at local roads and not even exploring. It's less about exploring Britain tip to toe and more about just exploring the local area of Bristol and a bit of the Mendip Hills. So that'd be nice. Uh, yeah. I'm going to get to Cheddar Gorge. There you go. That's my New Year's resolution. That's a vibe. I haven't been there for a very long time. I'm going to go and do, do some cycling in Cheddar Gorge.
1: I don't think I've ever been to Cheddar Gorge. So I'm going to add that to mine. I'm going to steal yours.
0: Thank you. Yeah, no, it is lovely. It's lovely. There's probably even a route online that I did once upon a time when we used to do the UK big rides for cyclist.co.uk. There you go. There's a website, a little plug, um, <laughs> of me cycling Cheddar Gorge that you can use.
1: Thank you, James. That is just what a note to end on.
0: I know what an incredibly generous person I am. Right, Emma, <laughs> I will see you in 2024. Enjoy whatever it is you do on the 31st.
1: You do, James. Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers, a training plan specific to your needs.
0: But the really smart thing is how Join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then Join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal.
1: It's really simple to use and workouts sync to everything from Garmins and Wahoos to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair Join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts.
0: Join comes as an app. And right now, listeners of The Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join.